for example, if you have a banana crop and a cyclone comes through and it wipes out the banana crop and, mm. pr- and banana prices go to $10 a kilo, which, you know, they did in the past. That's happened. You don't really say that the cyclone created value. Yeah, I definitely don't think anyone told I don't Cyclone th- Larry was a good thing. No, exactly, right? <laughs> um, and so the same applies for housing. Um, that's not a sign. The high prices don't imply value. You've got to look at the quantities as well. So if you're not building enough housing and you're building less than probably what people say they want, then that's probably not a good idea. Welcome to the Grattan Podcast channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing the effect of zoning restrictions on housing affordability. And now for something completely different on the Grattan Podcast channel, a discussion about housing affordability. (laughs) In early March, the economists Ross Kendall and Peter Tulip from the Reserve Bank of Australia released The Effect of Zoning on Housing Prices, a research paper looking at the impact on house prices of restrictive zoning and planning rules, such as minimum lot sizes and maximum building heights, which affect what kind of housing can be built and where. The paper found that this zoning effect contributes about 40% to the price of houses in Sydney and Melbourne and caused quite the stir on its release. Whilst there have been lots of studies which have identified planning rules as a significant contributing factor to rising house prices in Australia, this current paper is particularly valuable for its measures of just how much cheaper housing would be if planning rules did allow developers to build more homes. Joining me today to discuss the findings from the RBA paper and the subsequent reactions to it is Australian Perspectives Fellow and Resident Housing Affordability Expert, Brendan Coates. Welcome back once again to the podcast, Brendan. Megan, I don't know what we would do if we actually fixed housing. I'd have to find something else. We wouldn't have anything to talk about, you and I. Well, I might have some more time for some other stuff. (laughs) And I might live in a house that's closer than the city. I might live in a house at all. (laughs) (laughs) Megan's personal circumstances are clearly very dire at the moment. (laughs) I have an apartment. It's okay, listeners. (laughs) Uh, So, Brendan, how did Kendall and Tulip at the RBA go about their research? So I think this is a really interesting study um, because it tries to measure the counterfactual about how much cheaper housing would be if you didn't have zoning rules. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have zoning rules in general, um, but we do want to have a much, we needed a much better understanding of what the cost of those were in terms of how much high house prices were than they otherwise would be. Mm. And then you can talk about what the benefits are. So what Kendall and Tulip do is they actually follow a methodology that's been used for about the last decade in a bunch of other countries, particularly the US, New Zealand, um, there's stuff for England as well, or for the United Kingdom. And to what they do is they essentially compare how much does it cost to build a new house to how much does a house cost in the existing market. So if you wanted to buy a house in the secondary market that's already been built, how much does that, what, what's the price of that compared to the cost of building that new home? And when there's a difference between those two, then it signals that something's going wrong. Um, and as we'll discuss, it essentially means that you've got this zoning premium that comes about because it makes it's much harder to build houses than what those zoning rules really, that, well, those zoning rules make it much harder to build houses than what you perhaps might want. So what they do is they first estimate the cost of constructing, you know, a detached house in each of the major capital cities. So for Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. Um, and there's lots of data available on this from various sources because lots of um, uh, well, property developers, when they're trying to work out is a site feasible, mm-hmm. they need to know how much it would cost them. And so there's estimates for these various cities. Um, so for example, it costs about $395,000 if you were to go and replace the average detached house in Sydney with one of the same size. So $395,000 is the construction cost. 
then they essentially use they use a form of regression analysis where essentially they work out statistics. How, yes, statistics, econometrics, <laughs> how much people would be willing to pay for an extra um, parcel of land as part of an existing home, holding out the characteristics of a dwelling constant, like the number of bedrooms, the bathrooms, the location. So it's like basically how much would you pay to have an extra meter of backyard, for example. Mm. Um, and they find for Sydney that the, the home buyer would be willing to pay about $411 a square meter. So on the average Sydney house of 673 square meters, that's about $276,000. So that's about how much you would, you would pay for, a house, for extra land just without the right to build a new dwelling on it. Mm-hmm. And so the land for the average detached house, based on how much it's worth without the right to build a new house on it, is 276000 The costs of constructing the average detached house in Sydney is 395000 So that should suggest that the cost of constructing another house that's kind of like the average in Sydney should be about $671,000. And then what they do is they compare these costs uh, with the of constructing a new home with the cost of an actual house. And now in a world where there were no building restrictions on building new homes, the price of existing homes would roughly equal the cost of building a new home. In a, for an economist speak, the marginal cost of land would be equal to the average cost of land. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the average cost for a price of a detached house in Sydney is $1,160,000. That's quite different, Brendan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that we'll discuss later as to like, um, how much of this is really zoning. But essentially the difference between these two figures, uh, 1160000 and 671000 that's $489,000 in Sydney is what's the zoning effect. Mm. And what the, the way the RBA research is described is the difference is the zoning effect. And it could be thought of as the price a developer would pay for permission to build a home on a given plot of land if the rules allowed them to. So, because they could sell that house in the secondary market for $1.16 million. Mm. So they're willing to pay out an extra $489,000 just to get the right to build a property because they can then sell it for that much. Yeah. So then what were the key findings from their research? So the key finding essentially is this zoning premium is really large in our major cities Mm. and it's gotten a lot bigger over time. So it was $489,000 in uh, Sydney, 324,000 in Melbourne, 159,000 in Brisbane and 206,000 in Perth. So that essentially means that, you know, something like 40% of the price of a house in Sydney and Melbourne is the zoning premium and about 30% in Brisbane and Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that those land use planning rules added little to the cost of housing 15 years ago because they then run this, this analysis back over the last 15 years to basically 2000. Right. Um, and whereas the zoning premium in Sydney was maybe thirty or forty thousand dollars back in two thousand, and essentially non-existent in um, Melbourne and in Brisbane, um, it suggests that the, the problems become a lot worse over time. And you can think of it in terms of like a basic um, su- demand supply framework, where you've supplied if when you when you have more demand for housing, so you've got migration, you've got increases in incomes, you've got financial liberalization that makes it easier to get access to a loan uh, you got falling interest rates um, which it does a lot to increase demand for housing because it makes it a lot easier to make, make the repayments on a given mortgage so demand's gone up a lot and then if supply is constrained by housing rules then instead of seeing what we saw back in the 1950s and 60s where lots of demand led to lots of new houses being built mm. instead we've seen not that many more houses being built and just a really big increase in prices mm. 
And it's no coincidence that the zone, coincidence that the zoning premium is largest in those inner and middle ring suburbs of our major cities because you can't really produce any more land there. It's yeah. not really possible. So the only way you can get more physical space is to build up, and mm. um, to build more either to build more denser housing at one level, mm-hmm. so townhouses and the like, or to build up with apartments. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's also worth thinking about just in the ab, like away from the abstract of the RBA's research that, you know. If there was no zoning premium, then rezoning wouldn't actually give any windfall gains to anyone. No one would, the price of land wouldn't change if there was a rezoning. And what we know is that if you own land on the urban fringe and it gets rezoned from farmland to being part of the urban, inside the urban both growth boundary, say in Melbourne, that's actually makes the land a lot more valuable. Mm. If you get the right to build an apartment building of a certain height on a, on a piece of land, because uh, it's rezoned, that adds a lot to the value of that, um, mm. to that land. So if zoning didn't restrict housing supply, then rezoning wouldn't have any value in and of itself. Yeah. So these findings um, that Kendall and Tulip have have had with their research, how does that compare with other international research on zoning rules? And I believe we've done some research in this area as well, just a little bit. Yeah, we've done, we have done a bit of research. (laughs) So for all of our 177 page report, we never actually went down the path that the RBA economists did Mm. um, or that others have um, internationally. Part of the reason is the data isn't as easy to come by as you'd like. Mm. Um, but the RBA research is consistent with a bunch of other studies that we did cite in our in our report, um, where particularly, for example, in the US, economists Ed Glazier from Harvard and Joseph Gilko from Wharton did a similar exercise and found that the, the prices of existing homes vastly exceeded the cost of building new housing, but only in some cities. And there were these, these coastal cities with restrictive planning rules. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, Honolulu, of all places. I'm not really sure why that's the case. Yeah. Never been there. Uh, New York and Boston. And whereas I think it's important to note, they didn't find that other cities had a zoning premium. So um, a lot of the Sunbelt, the south and the west of of the United States, doesn't tend to have really restrictive zoning. And in those areas, there wasn't a zoning premium. So you could build a new house and it would cost as much as buying an existing house. Mm-hmm. Whereas in those cities like San Francisco and New York, that wasn't the case. Um, other research from the UK found, essentially found that, um, by Christian Hilber, found that um, house prices in the southeast, so you know London and the like, would be about 35% lower if as many planning p- permits were issued as in the northeast, where mm. zoning is less restrictive. And uh, study New Zealand, which I think is quite similar to Australia in the sense that most, it's a very urbanised city uh, or country, found that in major cities like Auckland and Wellington, the zoning effect accounted for essentially half the price of the homes, which is very similar to Australia. So we've been speaking mostly up to this point about detached housing um, and the impacts of zoning on detached housing. But let's be honest, we all know at this point that I probably am never going to afford a house. So I'm I'm keen on hearing more about the research findings on apartments. That's because you're just addicted to this inner city lifestyle. As, Look, that's the truth, you know. Brendan. <laughs> I'm not willing to move out for my house, no. Just these young millennials or millennials in general, perhaps, that are just not willing to take on, you know, the responsibilities and the sacrifices of moving further out. Or give up my smashed abo, quite frankly. Yeah, well, you know, you could make it yourself, but that actually probably doesn't save you that much money. Just as expensive, really. Exactly. So, look, yes, they do look at apartments. And um, I think it's really important that they do because um, a lot of zoning rules, a lot of land use planning regulations really affect 
what can be built in terms of apartments, mm. much as much if not more so than what can be built in terms of housing. Yeah. Now, when you're looking at apartments, it's a little different because you don't need any land to build more apartments, right? Mm. You can just you've just got to go higher, um, and it costs a bit more to go higher. So, um, to build a twenty-story building will cost you more. To build an extra apartment on a twenty-story building will cost you a bit more than building an apartment on a five-story building, for example. Why is that? Well, because once you get above a certain size uh, height, then you kind of need deeper foundations. Sure. You need like steel reinforcement. You need elevators, mm, of course, um, and all these sorts of things. So the the construction costs do go up. But again, mm. there are a bunch of um, data providers out there that sort of estimate or track these kinds of things and can tell you how much more it will cost you to build a 20-storey apartment, an additional apartment in a 20-storey building than a 10-storey building. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what the Reserve Bank researchers go to. So they look at the marginal cost of constructing a 20-storey apartment, an extra um, apartment on a 20-storey building relative to a 10-storey building. And they find that in Sydney, it costs about $470,000 to add an extra apartment to a 10 to 20-storey building. and other data sources sort of suggest something in the range of three hundred to five hundred thousand. But in comparison, the average Sydney apartment sold for eight hundred and seventy thousand in twenty sixteen. Again, I'm seeing a really big difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's a four hundred thousand dollar difference. So if the developer, if they could go high, would make a lot of money. Mm. In fact, they'd probably pay four hundred up to four hundred thousand dollars extra to do so. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, mind you, when we're talking about construction costs, this is accounting for you know a, re- a return to the developer like a rate of return on their capital investment sure. um, all and all the other bits and pieces that go into how much it actually costs at the end of the day. It's not just physically how much does it cost to put up the building. Here's so all the building materials it's and not, wages, etc. So they're yeah. not capturing the profit of mm. the developer in the zoning premium. Mm. And you can think of another um, example here of Fisherman's Bend in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been quite a lot of controversy how the the former planning minister, Matthew Guy, now the, um, dip, uh, the leader of the opposition, um, rezoned a lot of Fisherman's Bend um, and the value of the land increased dramatically. Now, if there was no zoning premium, mm-hmm. if if there was already enough supply of those kinds of properties in the market without being constrained by zoning, it wouldn't have made any difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, the land increased in value so dramatically that sub- subsequent governments had to spend quite a lot of money to acquire parks and a school for the area because that land hadn't been bought beforehand, yeah. which is a whole other story that um, our school education program director, Pete Goss, has written about in the past. <laughs> yes. So if zoning rules didn't restrict how many high-rise apartment towers could be built, again, there wouldn't be a zoning premium. Mm. Now, I spoke in my intro uh, about how this paper did cause quite a stir when it was released. Can you talk us through some of the criticisms it received? Were they justified? Yeah, so there have been a few. And, you know, some are more justified than others. Mm. Um, and, you know, there might be a few other things going on here rather than just the zoning premium. The first one was, you know, it ignored other factors that affect house prices like population growth, interest rates and so on. But I don't think that's a fair criticism um, because in their framework, um Prices are determined by supply and demand. Um, what zoning does is make supply unresponsive to an increase in demand. So you get more demand for housing, population growth, low interest rates. With constrained supply, you get higher house prices. And the theory being that if you have strong demand and you didn't have any problems on cons- on the supply, then you just get a lot more housing and prices wouldn't change all that much. Mm. Now, one fair criticism is, you know, if demand increases just in the last couple of years, like really quickly, and then... Um, supply can't keep up. So the Productivity Commission report uh, noted in a report on first-time buyers a while ago that, you know, if demand doubles really quickly, 
because um, interest rates fall really quickly, then there's no possible way you can build enough supply fast enough because you only add 2% of the housing stock each year. Sure. You know, and that's a fair argument. Yeah. But what the RBA research shows is that the zoning premium is built gradually over the last 15 years. Um, and so, and that's consistent with our findings that, you know, supply, that demand, sorry, jumped in the mid 2000s mm. when migration picked up, when incomes were growing strongly, interest rates started to come down um, after the global financial crisis. Yeah. And it took quite a long time until about 2013, 2014 before housing construction picked up. Yeah. And so I don't think it's a great, um, a great, critique of the paper because it would only be if it was supply if demand had risen, risen a lot in the last couple of years mm. so think of like a commodity boom and bust right so you know you there was lots of extra demand for commodities like iron ore um it takes a while to build new mines so we saw a boom in prices for a decade and then it disappeared now we've had a boom in prices for much more than a decade and supply hasn't really increased that much mm. whereas mine construction went crazy in, in Australia through 2010 through to 2013-14. Um, and the end of the mining boom in Australia was actually the end of the mining construction boom as much as it was the boom of prices. Mm -hmm. So I would tend to find that a lot of the Australian housing debate gets stuck in a kind of either or debate. It's either supply or it's demand. The reality is it's both. Rising mm -hmm. demand makes the problem, makes housing less affordable, but it really only makes housable much less affordable if you haven't got any, if you can't build any more houses. Yeah. Otherwise in the long term, you should get what we saw in the fifties where lots of new construction takes place and not that much of a difference in, in prices. Mm. Look, a related criticism of the paper is that this kind of methodology will always lead to a large zoning effect. Um, but that's not always the case. So US economists Glazer and Gyorko don't find that in the US beyond a few cities. Mm. And also the RBA's own paper doesn't show they find a zoning premium in the past. Using that same methodology. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, it's not just a case that they're always finding. And also, if if there's no, no no zoning premium in general, then rezonings wouldn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Were there other criticisms? Yeah, so a couple of others we'll just run through quickly. One mm -hmm. was the argument that, you know, there's a lack of competition amongst developers. So either developers land bank or there's some collusion between the banks and, prop and large property developers where they say, oh, well, good conspiracy. Exactly. Like, <laughs> where you don't, we don't essentially allow more... Um, uh, th those actors don't allow more supply to come to market because then they'd get less fuel, less for it. Yeah. And, you know, in theory, that's right. If, you know, you and I, we could we could band together and say that we're not going to work unless we're going to wage increase, but that, <laughs> this might be the last podcast that we do together <laughs> instead. I think that's likely. <laughs> um, so I'd like my wage to be high, but I can't force that unless I've got market power. Yeah. And um, Jim Minifee's recent report um, on competition found that housing construction is actually not, a very concentrated industry. Mm. Um, you know, the largest four players nationally accounted for something like 10% or less of the total market, which as far as competition goes and concentration goes is very low. Um, now there's a bit more concentration in say regional markets like Sydney or Melbourne, but look, as long as you've got five or six players, mm -hmm. you're not going to have that big issue. It's also worth thinking about it between the market segments. So you might have a bit of an issue with land banking on the on the greenfield side where developers buy the land and sit on it for a long time. Yeah. Um, that could be an issue, although there hasn't been a lot of evidence of that. Um, the large scale development by, um, you know, the apartment towers, which is done by the big developers like Mervac and so on, you've got a few players in the market. So that's, you're gonna struggle for there to be a lot of competition issues there. And then I think most importantly, the small scale stuff, like the small scale urban infill building townhouses, that's not done by the big guys. That's done by mm. small mum and dad 
property firms mm. that might have working capital of $5 million, there's no way that they're colluding. Mm. So I don't find that argument particularly convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a little bit of market power, that might bring down the Tulip and Kendall estimates by a little bit, but yeah. I don't think it's probably a big part of the story. Sure. Another one that comes up is that, you know, the RBA assumed that housing is fairly valued and therefore they've attributed any overvaluation due to perhaps, you know, there might, if there was a bubble, say, in the Australian housing He's market. B word. I know. Then, then that would be attributed to a zoning premium. And so it all comes down to whether you think housing is overvalued, right? Mm. So previous research from the Reserve Bank comparing the benefits of home ownership to renting suggested, well, not really. Mm. Like there's not an enormous amount of, of overvaluation. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, we do know that house prices tend to go up when when there's lots of credit in the economy. There's leverage cycles that makes it easier for those that already have a house. When house prices go up, it makes it easier for them to put the equity from their existing house into buying a new one, maybe speculating on the side. Um, and you tend to get investors expecting strong capital gains. And, you know, that's kind of where we are. And mm. if you're an investor in the market and you've got a rental yield of 2%, you're only really in this if you think you're going to get strong capital gains. Mm-hmm. So let's assume that they're overvalued. How would that feed through into the framework put forward by the two economists? Well, it would partly show up in the demand for the sort of the extra bit of land in the hedonic regression in the econometrics, and it would show up in the zoning premium. It's probably unlikely to show up in the construction costs because that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. That's pretty competitive. Yeah. Um, so it's not something you can rule in or out on the basis of this research. But it's probably pretty unlikely um, that it accounts for such a large share of the gains and that it's growing for so, for so long. You'd have to have a really big bubble. Now, some people do think that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, they've been thinking that for a long time and they've been wrong in the past. Mm. Whether that's right or wrong now, you know, is a hard one to answer. Um, but I would also say that, you know, bubbles normally come about when something is scarce. Yeah. And permits are scarce. The ability to build housing is scarce. So it is probably a little bit of a worry but i doubt that it counts for so much of the story when you've got such strong demand for housing Mm. from population from other sort of real sources and not just on the financial side um another argument put forward is that you know sydney's been building at record rates um housing construction is really strong the issue is so is population so um, it's the counterfactual that matters here. So even though, because Sydney, as in our report, as we argue, Sydney's been building more housing, particularly middle, sort of mid-sized apartment buildings in middle-ring suburbs. And yeah. we, we think that was a really good thing that that's been happening and the risk is now that it stops happening. Um, the issue here is you've got, you've got 15 years where the zoning premium's gone up a lot, where in the past city didn't do a great job of building lots more housing to meet a rising population and increased demand. And so it would probably take a while from here to sort of see that zoning premium come down if supply was running really hot. And as we know, the current supply is kind of only just enough to meet current demand, additional demand. So you're not really hitting the backlog of quote unquote undersupply really Mm. at the moment. Mm. So until you really start doing that, I wouldn't expect the zoning premium to come down all that much. So, I mean, zoning's been around for a while now. Surely, surely there's something some reason why that is surely there's got to be some good to zoning yeah absolutely um you know i'm a homeowner now so i now have any a a newfound (laughs) respect for zoning um particularly with developers lurking around wanting to build apartments nearby no Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. zoning has benefits like the whole theory is that you want to essentially manage different land uses so that 
um, some land uses impose costs than others. So you don't want to build an apartment apartments next to an abattoir or more to the point an abattoir next to apartments or next to a school that would probably be bad yeah. you know those um you wouldn't want to build in a, a, a waste dump next to the housing either like it, you know it generates a smell it's pretty unsightly um it's not it's not the kind of thing you want to do and that would impose costs if you allowed someone just to do that if that was laissez-faire you could do whatever you wanted with your land it'd be chaos um the reserve bank paper doesn't say zoning's bad it just shows that there's a cost um the unanswered question is, are those benefits worth the cost? Because this is suggesting that those costs are pretty large. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean you want no zoning, just that, you know, you've got to ask the question, should we have less stringent zoning than we have now? And that's certainly what we argue in the housing report. Mm -hmm. um, the issue is that I've never really seen a planners do a proper cost benefit analysis of the benefits of existing zoning rules um, relative to those costs. And I think that's really where we're at now. Uh, because economists that have done this in the past have tended to find that you know, while the benefits of benefits of land use are, are kind of there, the efficiency costs from um, land use planning rules are really quite high, mm -hmm. and so you want to make sure those benefits are really high as well to justify that. And I think the strangest interpretation of the results came from the uh, Planning Institute of Australia, who interpreted the RBA's finding as saying that planning creates value. So, and you know that's true. Planning sure. can create value. Yeah. Um, Creating livable cities increases demand in certain suburbs. Like living, if you're on the North Shore of Sydney or the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, they're very attractive places to live. Mm -hmm. um, in part because you know it's a lot of detached homes in leafy streets with access to good parks and infrastructure. Um, but planning also increases the scarcity value of well, the prices of housing, um, and when the supply of a good is um, restricted because of some regulation or a shock like a cyclone, the prices will increase. For example, if you have a banana crop and a cyclone comes through and it wipes out the banana crop and, mm. pr and banana prices go to $10 a kilo, which you know they did in the past, That's happened. you don't really say that the cyclone created value. Yeah, I definitely don't think anyone told I said don't cyclone Larry was a good thing. No, exactly, right? <laughs> um, and so the same applies for housing. Um, that's not a sign. The high prices don't imply value. You've got to look at the quantities as well. So if you're not building enough housing and you're building less than probably what people say they want, then that's probably not a good idea. Mm. Well, as always, Brendan, thank you so much for your time. And as always, I'm leaving this podcast on housing affordability, ever hopeful that we'll see some strong policy shifts in this space soon. Yeah, and tune in for our next housing, I mean, Grattan uh, podcast shortly. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> Uh, stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, research and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook Grattan Institute. Also, you can follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan Coates and head to our website, grattan.edu.au, if you'd like to download any of our research. Of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes to give it a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.